Hello and welcome to the Penn State College Democrats. My name is Tom Sarabach. I am the Executive Vice President of the Penn State College Democrats. And here with me today are two very special guests to discuss American education system. I'm here with Cleo Rosenbaugh-Burrow, who is Vice President of Queer Trans People of Color and a major in education with two minors in Special Education and African American Studies, as well as Jake Springer, the Vice President of Forum Consulting, uh, UPUA College of Education Rep, majors in education, secondary ed, and classics with minors in Jewish studies and education and public policy. That's a mouthful. Woo! Uh, <laughs> how are you guys feeling tonight on this uh, chilly Tuesday evening? Feeling great. Yeah. yeah. Hit the sidewalk pretty hard as I tripped over my shoelace on yeah. the road. Nice. But, you know, we're doing great otherwise. <laughs> and you ran into the, uh, the door coming into the, yeah, yeah. the recording studio. but Felt like a dog just ran no. right into the glass. <laughs> that, was, that was Jake five minutes ago. Now you're Jake now. Totally different. <laughs> totally different. Um, so I'd love for you guys to just go over like, a little bit about your backgrounds and kind of um, why you chose education and kind of like what where you come from, that sort of thing. Cool. Okay, yeah, so um, my my dad is an assistant teacher at a charter school. Um, I've always kind of known that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I always say the thing that I love to learn about is history, and the stuff I love to do is teach. So um, I'm really just interested in, in getting an education system and um, challenging myself to be the best teacher every day because I think a lot of teachers get, like, just comfortable in uh, the summers off and re- doing the same lesson plans every year, and... Um, to me, I could tell that as a student, and um, it wasn't fun for me as a student, and I can't imagine it's fun as a teacher. Um, and in this line of work, you got to make it fun. So um, I'm hopefully going to do Teach for America. I'll be in D.C., um, and I can maybe go outside of the classroom after after five, six years and, and see what's up with that, and then we'll figure it out then, but we still got time. Um, so I got into education. I didn't always know I wanted to be a teacher. I bounced between... Artist, psychologist, pop star, Taylor Swift phase, um, and then sort of settled around teacher my junior year of high school after um, I taught summer school and just absolutely fell in love with every single part of it, all of my students. Um, my grandmother was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. My mother is actually studying right now to be a teacher, and we're going to be certified at the same time, which is so cute. Um, I really feel like so many of society's problems are linked back into education, um, but then education isn't treated with that sort of same respect where if it's holding Mm. that much weight why isn't it getting that much power especially when you consider the history of education being built off of so much privilege and inaccessibility and oppression um you're feeding a broken machine or not a broken but you're feeding a faulty machine um and so I want to sort of do my part in the classroom to reset that dynamic especially because so many of society's problems are social issues and like school becomes a small just bubble version of the world around us and the way that that impacts students emotionally and mentally and such um then it can be tracked and is reflected in so much of what they do and if you can sort of end that and create a love for school and a love for learning and a comfort in the classrooms um students full um excitement and natural joy that they have about learning and doing everything um really gets to shine in a way that it doesn't always. Um, and then I do eventually um, want to get my doctorate um, in multiculturalism and education and train teachers about racial bias in education. Yeah. And then uh, that's uh, that's really cool. And that, that's like, I don't know, listeners, you could tell both these people are super educated, have like a lot of thoughts on education, which is why I'm happy 
of a pod today. I like to think so. But <laughs> I'm <laughs> still, just angry and talk a lot. <laughs> Same. So. There's still a lot to learn. Yeah. And then a little bit about my own background um, in terms of, I guess, education is that both my parents are college professors. Um, and then my sister actually is a, she's 24, 25, but she's um, an art school teacher at a charter school um, in Pittsburgh. It's like, called Braddock Hills. But it's, uh, it also caters specifically um, to students. I don't think, not specifically, it's not like they set out to be their mission, but based on location to students that are underprivileged, students of color, that sort of thing. Um, and it's really kind of given me a, a, an odd perspective because of my personal political beliefs. I'm not a supporter of charter, school, charter schools to the same degree, I think, as a lot of Republicans because I'm not one because I'm a Democrat. But, <laughs> you don't um, say. Yeah. No, I'm not a Republican. I would never, never. Um, anyways. <laughs> but it... Like, so I have that personal opinion, but then she also does great at a charter school, so I don't know if it's just that, but we'll get in that mm-hmm. discussion a little bit later. And I think that that dichotomy is, is always kind of pushed by the media that um, charter schools are some sort of um, understanding of free choice and the freedom of America. Um, and But I don't think it's that kind of dry in terms of, in terms of party lines. Like, uh, Barack Obama was a huge supporter of charter schools, and the Common Core Standards are built on a system that, infor- that encourages charter schools. And so I think a lot of the... Um, trouble around education in the in the political landscape is that no one party has clear sides one another. Teacher unions are huge supporters of uh, the Democrats, but if the Democrats want to change a lot of stuff to make schools better, they lose all that because the teacher unions are very strong and powerful. So I think that that's an interesting uh, aspect to politics that isn't very touched on, yeah. like often. In terms of teacher union and common core, there's two things I think we'll touch on later. I wrote those down, but I think they're interesting, I guess, discussions because coming from like a party perspective in the Democratic Party, like, there's a lot of issues that I don't know that much about, but I blindly vote on just because I do that and my family's done that. So that's great. Um, but I'd love to hear both your thoughts on kind of the education system right now. That's super general, but... I'm going to let Cleo yeah. take this one. Um, <laughs> right now? Um, <laughs> that, is a, that is a broad question. I feel like it's not very eloquent to just be like, it's trash, like I don't like it. Um, but it's trash and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> you know, call it Rosa Rose, if you will. Um, and so I feel like a lot of the big waves that are coming in education are happening very, very slowly and in very, very small bursts when you look at the grand scheme of things and when you look at teachers' unions versus political parties versus te- like like decisions that PTA boards try to make versus the parents who are actually, like the teachers who are actually in the classroom. It's like everyone's making decisions, but no one's talking to each other. And Mm -hmm. even more so with that, no one's talking to the students who are the ones who are very much actually being impacted by everything going on and the way things are changing. And I think a lot of the press back, um, so fun fact, I am, I'm not a Democrat, but I'm a leftist, um, but I come from a Republican household, which is like, Ha! Um, Thanksgiving is fun. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the pushback that I hear when these sort of discussions happen back home is the, the generational argument that, that that's not how I was raised. So when I talk about different classes, I'm learning the, the language literacy block um, and the idea of competency in students and per- permeable curriculum and all those buzzwords. My parents are sort of like, okay, so when do you teach them to do math? Like, <laughs> like so when do they learn how to take a test? Um, and just sort of the entire idea surrounding education needs to shift. It, it's a cycle. The idea surrounding education and what it means to be educated and the value that education holds and children's rights to that needs to shift so the foundation of education can shift, which does, do not at all match what our current 
ideas about education are the, the children are great, children are wonderful. Like that did not when this all started. That was not what this was for. Um, but we're still working with that same system. Um, so we're getting the same results. And it's strange because so much in our society has changed. You know, we don't use the same cell phone we used 100 years ago, but in a lot of the same ways, we're using the same schooling system that we were 100 years ago and are wondering why we aren't getting results that reflect what people are beginning to feel like are the ideals of our society. Um, that just sort of went off, but yeah, just it's a cycle. It all needs to change um, and something has to break first. And, and I would say that it, it starts with the teachers. And I think one of the biggest problems that, that roots the, the, the problems of the education system is, is the very underwhelming um, satisfaction that a lot of teachers get from their teacher prep programs in universities, right? So I think universities perpetuate a lot of the things that were, that, that Cleo and I feel are important, and, and there's, there's a huge community that would agree with us, um, that, that the system is broken. It inherently disvalues um, huge groups of students. Um, it's built on a classist understanding that was founded before women could even vote. Like that's how old the system is. And those Never are the women of color. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's still, there's, <laughs> I mean, in, in our class that we're taking right now, we're reading about the, uh, villainization of, uh, black women. We're also, uh, uh, reading whistling Vivaldi where, uh, stereotypes threat and things like, um, the general stereotype that women can't do well in math has like research done in Stanford at MIT has shown to affect their test scores unless you tell them, oh, no, you got a good test score on your last math test. Then that stereotype is gone because they're not thinking of that anymore. They're thinking, oh, no, I can't do this with proof in their mind. But um, regardless, we're still kind of in this cycle. Like it's a, it's a cyclical problem that, that keeps turning on its head and there's no real clear solution. There's just a lot of problems. Yeah. I would disagree with something you said. You said that the system is broken. And I think something that we both agree on is that the foundation of education is very damaging and oppressive. And if that's the case, then the system's not broken. The system's just oppressive. And it's continuing yeah. to work in the way it was designed, even though the ideas have shifted or are trying to shift. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I definitely, just coming from somebody who came from like a super privileged public school, incredibly, I'm not personally very wealthy, but there's people in my school district that like, their families made seven figures, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And going into a college environment, I felt so adequately prepared, but the disparity between myself and I guess the average student and then the student that's coming from poverty from a poor school district is like so great. And it's even like one of those things coming from like a privileged area, you can totally see it. But the one thing I want to ask you about, Jake, based on your kind of last... Um, statements or when you talk about the college prep courses, I guess going towards teachers and the the future of the teachers, do you see that at Penn State specifically? Do you see it in your education courses? And I guess you both could answer that. Uh, I have. I've also seen the opposite. Um, Cleo and I were lucky to um, take part in a DC Social Justice Fellowship where we um, learned um, how to embody the idea that teaching is a form of advocacy. And then we um, we went through lesson plans. We learned about uh, things like the um, school to prison pipeline, how to um, how to stop that in its tracks in the classroom. And then we actually got to um, teach in D.C. public schools um, and experience that firsthand. Um, how oppressive that system is, as as Cleo said, and um, it was enlightening. It was it was a it was a life changing experience. And then I went into my uh, social studies education class, one of my first methods class, where you, quote, learn how to be a teacher, 
And I kid you not, I was on uh, fantasy football the entire class. Was because it our league? What? Was it our fantasy football? Yeah, it was our fantasy league, yeah. which you you lost in the championship, yeah, right? Unfortunately. Right. Side note. But go <laughs> um, sport ball, yeah. <laughs> It was just a lecture, and yes. like he's teaching us how to be a teacher, and he's just lecturing off a of PowerPoint. For, and he's not a good teacher. And he's not a good teacher, right? And, he, and, um, and you see that within, like I've talked to people within the College of Education that are like, yeah, in the college, like university faculty in the college are, exper- are demonstrating their own problems that the good teachers acknowledge and try to get us not to do, <laughs> do the exact same thing, so... It's again, it's so cool. There's both sides right in front of you. I'd agree with that. Um, the DC mentorship, uh, internship, internship, wow, um, program was really impactful in terms of learning how to view, like, like confronting your own biases as a teacher, um, and not necessarily biases in the traditional sense, like race and class, et cetera. But it was really interesting for me being, you know, at the time of, you know, I'm 20 now, but at the time I was 19 and I was working with students who were my age um, and older than me and who were calling me miss. And I had to sort of, on the first few days, I realized I was having a lot of discomfort because I felt like I was back in high school again because I'm looking at people who are taller than me. And I'm like, I'm like, everyone's judging my outfit. Like this is, and you have to learn how to look at um, your students um, in a fresh way and you have to learn about what about you is stopping that so that you can be the most effective teacher for them. Um, along with that, um, within Penn State College of Ed, the LED block, I was super privileged in that I got to work with um, Dr. Courtney Sherbine, um, who is one of the best professors I have ever had um, and is just such a big advocate for student-centered learning and and bringing in what students enjoy into the classroom. So not just working from the workbook, which can be easier. You can teach the test, and then students can do well on the test, but did they learn anything? Do they like school? Did they get anything out of it? Um, that being said, yeah, I definitely agree with Jake. There are teachers who do the exact opposite. Um, mm-hmm. Teachers who shall go, professors who shall go unnamed. Um, but um, I yeah, have seen just a lot of the same doing exactly what they tell us not to do in a lot of circumstances. And I want to make it clear that, like, these professors aren't, like, bad people. Like, no. that's another crux of the problems in education is you that, like... be a good person and still be prejudiced. And still be a bad teacher, just straight up, mm-hmm. and, like, not know how to teach. And, like, that's seen all the time. Um, because teachers... It's a, a term that we use is called loose coupling. When the door shuts in the classroom, it's their classroom, and they can do whatever they want with those students, um, which can be good, and it can also be bad. Right, and I think that we see a lot of that in America with with freedom and 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 and, and liberty and um, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I I think it's it's going to be interesting to actually get into the classroom as a full fledged teacher. Cross your fingers that you don't die from the <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but I will say, as like a, as a history student, Penn State, I do see something that's super beneficial. Kind of goes the opposite, where like a lot of history is obviously built off of like societal prejudice and biases and it goes off. But the history professors at Penn State do, do like a really amazing job, not only just here, of like correcting people's biases and kind of talking about issues in the past and kind of like being, I guess, transformative in what people think of as history. It doesn't always work because I know history majors are awful people. But I think... That's true. Yeah. But I would agree with you as a, as a classics major. I do think that the social histories and um, underrepresented histories are represented fairly well on yeah. the campus. 
But I think that's like something I guess in the college of education that might and again it might have to do with just the education how it's taught in America, which is I guess the next subject we'll get into. But uh, so we mentioned that kind of like the system is kind of oppressive. But what would you say are kind of the very pinpoint issues where there's a very clear like crack and there's something like terrible happening that nobody's doing about, or not even that, but just something that causes almost like a domino effect. Like, where do you see these issues? Like what what have you identified? Um. That brings into play the idea of Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality. It's just like the genuine or the legit intersection of identities and the way those things impact each other. So my experience is personally, I am um, a cisgendered, bisexual, black woman um, with mental illness. But if I was a cisgendered, um, what did I say? Cisgendered, um, bisexual, bisexual black man with mental illness, my experience would be different. Let, then you throw in subsects of all of these isms, you throw in within racism, you throw in colorism, so I'm also light-skinned black women, so um, everything. And then, you know, with bisexuality, I'm a feminine presenting LGBTQ person, so there are things that within Cutie Pop we've discussed that I have to worry about that um, my colleague Jasmine Jackson, who is the president of Cutie Pop, um, doesn't worry about as a masculine presenting black woman, but there are things that she as a masculine presenting black woman worries about that I don't have to worry about as a feminine presenting black woman. And I think with school, um, the same sort of issues arise in which we see very, I keep saying very much, um, we see very much though which identities um, are focused on in the already existing social hierarchies. So which labels get you in the negative sense labeled as something or the other incorrectly labeled. And so one of the big things that I will argue till the cows come home, because you mentioned in the College of History, or the College of History, yes. Uh, the, the, uh, history in the College of Liberal Arts. Oh, History yeah. in the College of Liberal Arts, I'm um, sorry. Um, that professors do a really good job in addressing bias and addressing um, the way things are now versus the way things were and the way things were may not always be reported in the most ethical way, just as you analyze different texts. Um, and something that's sort of disappointed me about the College of Education is that that doesn't happen a lot, um, mm -hmm. unless the students bring it forward, or you have a really, really good professor, which again, I've still been very, very privileged to have. But um, unless the entire group wants to talk about it, people don't really talk about it. Oftentimes, it's one or two people sort of accidentally reading, leading a discussion on racism at 9.05 in the morning. <laughs> um, and even then, sometimes the professor, I'm not sure if they're trying to let the students discuss within themselves or don't know where to go, but it becomes very frustrating. And so when tackling that in the classroom, if you've had four years of these classes and it's been maybe brought up once, um, then you get there and you haven't been able to address any of it. Um, and so the very obvious things for students stick out. And then you wind up assigning not even just identity labels in terms of what you're born as or what you learn to identify as, but like who's a good kid and who's a bad kid. Um, and then those become dominoes to all of the various other isms and ists that exist. Um, and the longer you stay teaching, unfortunately, the more and more evident it can become. Um, yeah, and I think, I think a great example of that is the uh, high rate, and, and there's a lot of research around this, is the, uh, the high rate of uh, how many students of color are mislabeled, if you want to use that word, uh, as special education. Especially African-American boys. Right, right. And um, I, think, I, think, I think that you're absolutely right. Like, um, I don't know about 
about your experience, I'm, I'm almost positive because you're elementary ed, but there's literally no, uh, like there's very few, there's very few males, but that's not what I'm going for. There's very few students of color in any education classroom, right? No. And then, like, I literally don't have any students of color in any of my education classes right now, except except for the one that we're taking, which is specifically about pedagogies and identities and power structures, right? So what does that say about the students within the College of Education and the way that the college is leading them to become teachers? And then, um, and then when there are students of color, they become tokenized in the classroom, which is one of the main things that they... <laughs> Trying to teach us not to do right, and so we're seeing that that there's just so many different specific problems that just fall around people who don't really know what they're talking about. Trying to teach people who don't really know what they're talking about, and I feel like people know what they're talking about. They just don't want to talk about it. Like we okay. like we touched on earlier, the idea of prejudice, and like you can be smart, you can be nice, you can be funny, you can still be racist, like you can still be prejudiced. And no, I'm so serious, because people, the minute you bring up certain buzzwords, you bring up prejudice, you bring up privilege, like everyone's super defensive because no one wants to be called like racist, but people, I'm often frustrated in people's discomfort with being called racist before their discomfort, um, before their discomfort about if they're perpetuating racism. Um, and a lot of times I will see that happen just in day-to-day -day conversations, even outside of the classroom, um, where that's where it shuts down. And it's not because people don't know. It's because people don't want to be called out. Um, Call-out culture and cancel culture is a huge thing with our generation, which I'm personally um, a fan of just in my own sphere. Because at the point where I'm calling you out, I've decided I care about you and I don't want you to be prejudiced. Um, so we're going to talk about it until I'm blue in the face and as long as I have the emotional energy to do so. It comes from um, love. It comes from love, yeah. If I didn't care about you, you know, walking down New York City, like, not going down the street in New York City, like, if I'm in the city, um, someone cat calls me, I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying anything, I'm going where I need to go. Versus if one of my guy friends says something racist or, or um, not racist, sexist or perpetuates rape culture or like, oh, she a hoe. I'm going to say something because I expected more from you as my friend. Um, and we're going to do the same thing with our students yeah. in the classroom because we have the highest expectations for our students and um, can't give into these self-fulfilling prophecies that uh, no, students, they're just kids. They're going to learn it. No, no it's our job to teach it. Yeah, and I think you're seeing that with uh, the news at Covington Catholic High School about how if you don't oh, teach yeah. kids. Yeah. Don't teach kids about prejudice and racism and all that. They become awful monsters in MAGA hats, making fun of a Native American protester, American Indian. But yeah, but and also just to, to touch on a point real quick that you mentioned, Jake, like the idea that in your education classes there's no students of color. I think it also has to do with the with Penn State itself and how yeah. non-diverse university is. But um, and in terms of issues in education, it's kind of this next topic. But do you guys see issues in terms of education? Um, and you will because it's an issue. But education funding, how money goes into the system, um, how I guess we can maybe touch on teachers unions, how what happens to that money? Do they get the money they deserve? Do teachers get paid enough? Money. You're gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so I mean, a, a great example that I always use is um, it actually starts with higher education. Um, right now, Penn State gets less money from the state government than it did in 2009, which is absurd. Right, and I think you can talk a lot more about that as, as the yeah. gov chair, gov, uh, gov vice chair, gov vice chair, yeah, uh, yeah, gov chair, wink face. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can only hope. And then, uh, so yeah, so education funding, especially it's it's by the states, it's largely by the states. There is federal funding that's um, 
kind of tied to it, but a lot of states don't take the federal funding so that they don't have to abide by the standards. Um, that was actually one of the big failures of Barack Obama's presidency that I would say is that Common Core is basically, uh, if you do this, we'll give you the money. And the understanding was, oh, well, they're going to want the money. No, they'd rather just the education do what they want to do and not take the money, um, which is kind of like messed up. But just as we have our own beliefs, like they're just as resolute in theirs. Um, and it's about getting those conversations happening. And I don't think forcing it is going to be the right way to go about it. Um, but then, yeah, again, like um, I was actually told in a class a couple of days ago to join the teachers union for insurance reasons so that I would have to pay less. So I think that the teachers money and they give like billions of dollars to Democrat candidates. So like they are huge wealth um, of resources for political parties. But um, the amount of power that they have in the in the in the uh, in the school system is 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 founded on that on that wealth, but more, more like, more importantly than, than numbers, like literally every teacher is in the teacher's union. So literally every teacher is behind the voice of the teacher's union leader. So they have an immense amount of power. Um, otherwise I don't know too much about specifics in education funding besides that it's incredibly low (laughs) and needs to increase. Yeah, you kind of hit it. <laughs> so you said that was so interesting that I personally didn't know, and this will literally change my politics and my beliefs going forward, but the idea that, I guess, states don't take funding because they don't want to follow federal standards Yeah. Um, is, I I mean, that makes perfect sense now that I think about it, but it's something I hadn't considered. And it's something, again, whenever I'm looking at Democratic candidates, I'm not necessarily looking at their education policy, but it, it is it kind of, it, it definitely has changed my mind a little bit in terms of the way I'm not seeing Barack Obama, but just seeing Democratic politicians and their solutions to issues that you can't necessarily make like a common core mm-hmm. standard that enforces, I guess, certain educational beliefs because states don't mm-hmm. go with that, which it, I think makes the problem of education worse right. fundamentally. And I think that one of the cool things that's happening in politics with education is the wealth of teachers that are being elected to Congress. Like there, there are famous examples. Um, actually, my own representative uh, in, back home in, in uh, Chester County, um, I'm blanking on her name, but was a, a former TFA core member. Um, and so it's it's awesome to see the and there there are famous people. I saw one on Jimmy Kimmel the other day when I was, when I was on break, um, and it's just cool because I think that like for so long there's been so few representation of education practitioners within Congress that I think some of these changes we might start to see that need to happen. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm trying to see who is it. Carolyn? No, she. Carolyn it's the sixth. Sixth district, I think. Oh, okay. I'll look up. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I was super hyped. But yeah, I think that's that's something that I think will change in the future. But I guess the idea that and I guess that goes back to systematic, but I think that's the issue of federal standards affecting funding to schools, especially in the states that won't take them because they're more conservative states. But the reality mm-hmm. is that conservative states, even though I mean they're not always predominantly white, but like rural white areas are the affected negatively and I think that goes to push biases even further because the people that are the most biased are getting the least amount of education comparatively um, and I think that kind of is why America sucks right now and has <laughs> yeah. sucked for a long time um, so moving back to government um, I'd love to guy, get you guys thoughts on Betsy DeVos the current Secretary oh, of Education huge and fan do you think she's done a good <laughs> job so far do you think she's getting A plus of your teachers <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to curse on the show? Um, no. Yeah, I mean, you can, but... Okay. I won't. I'm sorry. That was a joke. Um, she's awful. Um, 
she doesn't know anything about education. Actually, I think she knows a lot. I think she just knows what she's doing. Really? Yeah. I think she's just doing what she wants and doesn't... She understands what it could be doing, but doesn't understand, like, being, like, like the ripple effect I of see everything that. Yeah. she's doing. Um, where she, she, what, she was PTA mom, Catholic private school, like, that school, that school system alone is so different so than different. any public school, even so in the same different. town. So from there, from, if that is the base on which, or if that is the platform on which you are basing your knowledge of the educational school system from when you were back in school, however many years ago, um, versus then sending your kids to private Catholic school does not reflect the general sense of education Mm -hmm. everywhere else. Um, And so you can't make, I mean, I'm saying you can't, but she has been making decisions about education from that tiny, tiny, tiny framework of knowledge it's it's deplorable i absolutely and i think that it it really comes from this idea of like like there's a there's a big rise in using economic theory and like free market theory to drive (laughs) right right and 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 they're using it to drive education right so which doesn't make any sense because you're just totally ignoring the lack of a level playing field between everybody and the different students and the different families and the different school districts right and the different state governments that are funding these school districts and their difference in property taxes right it's it's not a level playing field at all and so what when she advocates for things like school choice you know it has that nice ring to it school choice like right to work like that sounds awesome yeah but it's really not it's really just a way to um just like we were saying the education system itself is oppressive it's a way to continue the oppression of individual groups for the betterment of others, right? For the betterment of people that can pay for those private schools, they actually are probably getting a better school as a result of her actions. But the people who need the the, the school increase, the people who need public school funding, are probably not getting that anymore. And the charter schools that open to replace those public schools are often just as bad as a public school because they're using the same money that they had before, right? And they're having the same... um, I don't want to say the same teachers, but a lot of times those teachers just go to the same charter schools. Um, uh, when I was when I did an internship for Teach for America this summer, um, there's a school in, in Philadelphia called Strawberry Mansion High School that was actually closed, and um, the teacher there, who was my, um, um, I guess you could say like mentor guide, like boss. Okay. I guess yeah. you could say like um, she was a great person. Um, uh, I didn't really work well with her, but that's besides the point. Besides the point, she's, she, she, I could tell she was a great teacher. But she, when that school closed, she went to the charter school that all of her students were going to to follow the kids because that's what a good teacher does. But is that solving the problem? No, it's just putting the kids in one building to another, and you're not actually – they don't actually have the choice that this charter school is supposed to represent unless they want to take a bus 50 minutes away, and then you're hurting them because they have to lose two hours of every day. They probably can't do extracurriculars because then their parents have to drive to them outside. You know what I mean? So that, Assuming that they're not going to have a car. Like, assume, yeah, exactly. Especially if they live in the city. Um, public transportation costs money if you're doing it every day. If you need to work. If you, if you need to work. You have to take care of siblings. If you have a kid to take care of, like, the schools that are already hurting get hurt the most when it comes to school choice and charter schools and where then the money goes. 
because the ones who need it then aren't getting it because it's like oh well you're doing well so we're gonna take like take more it doesn't yeah and I think a lot of the issues especially I think with with what you just mentioned where schools that do better get more funding on like standardized test stuff and I don't know how widely that has been practiced but I know during the George Bush presidency mm -hmm. with um, No Child Left Behind that was like a massive issue mm -hmm. and gap and we're not going to take it back to that history lesson uh -huh. uh, as a new beast but I will say I think Betsy DeVos is coming from a super low educational standpoint. Chrissy Houlihan. That's uh, who yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, that's, that's who yeah, it was. <laughs> Shout out to Chrissy Houlihan if you're listening. Big fan. Huge fan. Thank you for listening, Chrissy. <laughs> I know you are. No, um, but yeah, like, I think it, it's somebody, I think in my opinion, she was the least qualified Secretary of Education and has done the most damage in her position of as a secretary, even compared to Secretary of Defense, Mattis, who quit, or anybody else who quit, like, because the issue with education is kind of like the Supreme Court where it affects America for years and years to years to come if you mess it up a little bit. Um, and I think we're seeing repercussions now from No Child Left Behind. I think we're going to see repercussions yep. from closing all the charter schools, that sort of thing. Or not closing, closing public schools, opening charter schools. Uh, but yeah, and we kind of touched on the issue of school choice, so I'll skip that. And we touched on the issue of teachers unions, so I'll skip that unless you guys have other thoughts on teachers unions. Um, there is a D.C. Um, Dean, Superintendent, Superintendent Michelle Ree. Um, she was very, very famous um, for taking on the teachers unions. Um, so she essentially, so okay, so DC public schooling system is one of the worst in the nation. Um, and, it, and she inherited that position, which was like a new position every single year. I'm definitely messing up some of these facts, but it was essentially, it was a, it was a rotating door. There was a new person there every year. And what she did was saying, okay, so we need the best teachers right now. We're not getting good teachers at all. We need to incentivize good teaching and just people to go into the field. So what we're going to do is to create a model of, um, we're going to hit these marks. And if you hit every mark, you're going to get a pay increase up to $110,000, right? But we're going to end all tenure. Teachers unions were not a fan of that for a clear reason, right? Because it, it, it does probably hurt a lot of them. Um, and so uh, she was beaten. And it was funny, Donald Trump was actually considering her for Secretary of Education. And um, obviously, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all. But I was super interested if she got that position, what she was going to do. Um, so that's just one of the few things about teacher unions that yeah. It's kind of like a uh, what if that I, see, I think would be interesting. A, I see a pretty good connection to when we're talking about free markets again. I think that idea that, oh, if you do these job requirements and you do them better than everybody else, you get paid more. I think that, that goes back to the idea of like a business, which I think a lot of people on the conservative side want to run America like business. And it doesn't work like that, right? And Cleo's shaking her head. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's like a huge issue. Again, bringing free markets in. I think... So teachers unions, I think whenever I was in school, we were raised up with the idea that they're bad and that they stop bad teachers from getting fired. But I yeah, think, I think that narrative is yeah. And, and I don't know popular. if that what do you say? Oh, so yeah, popular. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if that's necessarily true. But what I will say is, somebody who's more involved with the Democratic Party now, I think it unions do a very valuable job of kind of protecting um, like workers. But I don't know if teachers. In this can be because of their job can be considered as a worker the same way a carpenter is right where a carpenter can just get beat down by like a scab where teachers do a very specific job kind of like a four-year degree or more i think it's like a little bit of a different issue where a union kind of changes its perspective right and i think that the teaching profession kind of walks this line between a profession and a job right i i mean people who are teachers will tell you like we get trained like like doctors or like lawyers do. We don't have as much schooling, but we probably don't need as much schooling because you learn when you're in the classroom, right? But then we get paid very poorly and teachers unions 
act like a, like a coal miners union or things like that. So I think it's as we walk that line, it's a facet yeah. of that. Yeah, I'm always afraid to get rid of unions because unions back the Democratic Party. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I guess uh, the last conversation topic before we get into I guess other thoughts. Um, and just stuff in general, but um, Jake mentioned Common Core a couple of times, but I'd love to hear both your thoughts on Common Core, because again, it was one of the things when I was in school, and when you guys were probably in school, uh, the narrative of Common Core was that it's bad, and it's evil, and it's going to come beat us down, and standardized tests are evil, but like, I'd love right. to hear your thoughts from people that are actually educated in education, no pun intended, on it. It's bad, it's evil, so <laughs> I don't like it, I don't, um, there's no, there's very little, a lot of times, you you nerd. Okay. There's. Um, <laughs> I'm currently jeweling right now. That's what she's laughing at. Yes. Jake, look um, at. Brief aside, Jake had to delay this podcast because he had to oh, get yes. his jewel from his apartment. I told him, I was like, you nerd. Like, I'm scum. You're not going to be able to do that in school. Face the consequences Jake. like the rest of us. You can't do that in school. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Take it for real. Um, oh, God. Oh, yeah. Um, there's very, very room for creativity, not just for the teacher, but especially then for the student. Um, a test doesn't tell you almost anything you need to know about your students and what you need to do for them. It tells them, it tells you what they understood at that moment at that time, or that they were tired taking the test and they decided they were gonna fill in diagonally for the rest of the time. And somehow they got a third of those answers correct. So now that's their score, even though it might not, it's not accurate. Um, I feel like there are a lot more effective ways to engage with, evaluate, and instruct students, and then to evaluate teachers than their tests um, than on Common Core test scores because they don't take enough into consideration. They don't take students with special needs into consideration. They don't take English language student, um, English language learning students into consideration. And then if there is a test that's given just to everyone, okay, then you have to consider then all of I keep. I keep being the one to like say like all the isms and ists. So if you can't tell, this is what I care about. Um, <laughs> there are questions we had. Um, oh God, was it behavioral psych? It was with it was with Debbie. Um, mm -hmm. The class I had with Debbie. Uh, special education. No, it, was just... no, it wasn't special education. I had a different class with her. But we were talking about um, test questions and all the potential ists and isms they can perpetuate. Where if you ask certain questions, so the question that she brought up that was just very plain, very easy. Um, the question was, what are, like, that showed up on a test that then got taken away. But the question was, what are police for? <laughs> oh, so loaded. Um, and so you're giving that question to everybody, you know, and it was like, protect, you know, help you walk your dog. Um, like, if you're bad, and like, the, an the answer was supposed to be protect, but given the current political climate and current social climate, I'm guessing you can guess, like, where certain answers were incorrect yeah. and it was with it was with students of color um in urban areas where they were saying the quote-unquote incorrect answer of what police were for but if that's what you're exposed to if that's your understanding and now everyone's getting the same test guess who's getting the answers wrong um so i think that we can't if you're giving a test so we talked about the foundation of education being wrong and the education system being damaging and oppressive and if you're building a test off of that damaging and oppressive system, what are you going to get? A damaging and oppressive test. Yeah. You are not fixing anything. If anything, one of the only, only positive things I've seen with testing is that it shows straight up numbers about achievement gaps between different demographics. The thing is, though, we have those numbers, but not nearly enough is 
anything being done to address it. It's, oh, well, this happens. And it gets chalked up to, it gets chalked up to everything else but the foundation of education needing to change and teacher bias and test bias. Because, again, no one wants to be called racist. Um, but if you're giving a racist test, then you, oh. Um, right. So, so I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, I do, I do. Common Core is more than just the tests, too, right? Um, I think the Common Core standards themselves are actually very adept. I think that they're actually good. Uh, if, a, if a student meets all of those standards, I think there are other standards that as a teacher I want my students to meet, mm -hmm. but I think the standards are actually very well done and much better than the uh, No Child Left Behind standards. Mm -hmm. um, well, almost anything is better than No Child Left Behind. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I still don't like this one. <laughs> and um, there's also things in the curriculum in Common Core that um, that should probably stay. And there are parts of the Common Core tests that are good. So for example, uh, a huge problem with elementary and middle school math tests is that it's also an English test. Mm. You also have to read the question. But a lot of the questions and the way that they're formatted take that away. So for example, teaching someone a basic basic number line, right? Integers. Where? So it says uh, place negative seven. And then it just has a number line. Right, so there's no way unless you don't know the word place, then there's no way to misunderstand that question, right? And so there are improvements in Common Core. Um, so I don't want to seem. I, I mean, I personally think that not all of Common Core is bad. I think what's bad is the focus and rigor and nature of the testing system in the United States. And Common Core is obviously a huge part of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I think that's where I get stuck because I just <laughs> I can't. I can't get it. <laughs> Which is fair. Yeah. I was going to say standardized testing, I think, is, is to me one of, I, there's the point that, like, it gives numbers, but I think you really have to look at why there hasn't been change based off of achievement caps and stuff like that, but you have to look at who's looking at the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a predominantly white male government who comes from privilege who go to, like, Harvard and all these other stuff, like, of course... Which is especially interesting when you look at the demographics of teacher yeah. who make up education is that being reflected in yeah. the administration. And then, so you have people looking at the numbers that aren't necessarily the best actors to do the proper changes. But I think also standardized tests themselves just give away privilege. And I think Cleo touched on it with the idea of certain questions are geared towards certain people, right? So even if you don't, in your household, use traditional English, if you're speaking a mix of English and Spanish, if you're using like... Um, like slang or something in your household, it doesn't necessarily show how intelligent you are, how successful you'll be. It's just the language you use in your house. And that doesn't translate onto a standardized test when you're asking all kind of ridiculous questions in ways that you don't actually speak and you don't actually read or you don't like that. But I think too, just standardized tests give away the privilege in the sense that um, I think public schools with more funding can give more time to preparing for them. Like I remember mm -hmm. in my fourth grade class, I took the PSSAs. And we're talking about focusing. My teacher, like, had funding to buy, like, us, like, tons of food and a buffet. And at the time, it was, like, really sick. But in retrospect, like, in a, like, a school that has poverty or in a school that doesn't have nearly the amount of public funding because they don't do as good on the tests, they don't have the money to buy, like, food for their fourth graders to take some stupid test anyways. So I think um, it's a really big issue. But I think something else that Cleo touched on, which I agree with, is they don't pay um, necessarily creativity. But I think that opens up a, the idea of creativity in education and art and music. I think that opens up a really nice window for, I guess, a middle solution, if you know what I'm saying, like from the left and right. Because I think if you talk to a parent who's on the right and a parent who's on the left, or like everybody wants their kid to receive some sort of creative education. They want them to bring home 
Claire's shaking her head. What do you? Oh no, just just I've heard other people say like no, like wanting the really? traditional like reading, writing, arithmetic. Oh, like, yeah. oh. like what is this for? What is this good for? Especially because we're in the age of testing, testing, testing. So it feel like feels like this is a waste of time when my kid be working so that they do better on the test so that everything's better. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are probably right about that. But anyway, <laughs> if I was a parent, I want my kid to bring home like a macaroni sculpture. Um, this is the example I was going to do and make it real folksy. But I think that is like an area to fix. Um, yeah. I don't think that like necessarily people are like, okay, so for example, to, to teach creativity in a history class, for example, you could say, um, uh, we're going to learn about, I don't know, like say the, the Revolutionary War. Just a super classic example, right? Um, and you can express your knowledge of it in the end of a unit with any way you want. So you can paint a picture, you can write a poem, right? You can do any of these things. But not all of those things prepare you for the test. And so I think a lot of parents would see, you painted a picture about the Revolutionary War? What? And then get mad about, like, how is this preparing you for the test? Because mm -hmm. the student in that moment probably isn't going to be able to answer that question. Um, I'm like, I don't know, it was fun. We don't have homework now. But yeah, like, exactly. The teacher's done all this planning surrounding it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, it, and, and, and Cleo said this before, it's a lack of communication between all the facets of the educational system. Yeah, I think you guys are definitely right. Were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to jump on what you said on the idea of both sides wanting the same thing in terms of education. Um, I always struggle with, so something that we talked a lot about um, with the TCMA master is the idea of teaching being a very political thing um and just the same way that you don't um that we've talked about teachers having biases we have biases because everyone has bias everyone has prejudice everyone has privilege just to umbrella that um i very much worry about in my teaching um the way that my biases are going to leak out just because i know i am a very political person i'm a very left person and there are things in my classroom where it's like Oh, well, this is freedom of speech. All opinions matter. No. Racist opinions. Um, homophobic opinion. We're shutting, like, yeah. we're going to talk about it. We're going to shut it down. Um, I'm not, like, I'm not, because there's freedom of speech, but there's not freedom of consequence. So you can say what you want, but if you say something racist, that means we're going to have to talk about it. Um, and I and think that, like <laughs> that the way you're approaching it is so minute, but it's so different than the way that they would, the other, uh, a lot of teachers would talk about it, right? So if a student says a, a, says a racist comment or a sexist comment in class, it's not to just say you can't say that. It's saying, why did you mm -hmm. say that? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. How does that make your classmates feel, right? And so um, I think that that's a minute difference that gets lost a lot of the times. Yeah. If we don't acknowledge that those feelings are there, they will never go away. Yeah. We have to acknowledge them and... I guess we could use the term fix them. Yeah, I, I think right now there's like two extremes almost where you have the stupid conservative way where it's like, oh, they're just kids being kids. It doesn't matter if they say something terrible. Um, or, it's, then, or it's their right to say that. Yeah, right? or it's their right you to say that. You can hear that, that a lot. Right. And it's my right to correct you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the parents' right to tell them what's right or wrong. But then there's yeah, also, I guess, a, the extreme of just like blatantly, like, I mean, I'm not saying you can't punish the kid, but just saying like throwing them in detention, not telling them what they did wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they grow up to be some angry all right asshole who just hates everything but like i think if you like sit down with them like hey this hurts somebody's feelings or why which is what should happen like i think that'll correct a lot of issues moving forward and i think that's just in life but also in the education system where we learn everything for the rest of our lives um, yeah yeah so it's a solid is, statement right there yeah. <laughs> i'll end it on that one
Um, so it's eight fifty seven on Tuesday. Nice. I've been <laughs> that time matters to you, listener. One. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Sarabach. I have been the executive vice president of the Penn State College Democrats. With me has been Jake Springer, vice president of Form Consulting. Cleo Roseboro, vice president of Cutie Thank you for listening. Um, subscribe, give it a rate, give it a review. Um, yeah, 100% subscribe. There's great content coming out every week. Yeah, apparently. And uh, <laughs> register to vote because there's a special election yes. coming up and you should vote in it. 